Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church, you ecclesial nuts. In this episode, I talked to Robin Henderson Espinoza, who is a queer activist, a Latinx scholar, and a public theologian. And they are creating a project that is called Activist Theology. So uh, I say creating because it's not a project that is meant to be created and, and set in stone, but a project that is always in its becoming and it's always ongoing. So I talked to Robin and all of the things that consist of activist theology, and I really think you're going to love it. Also on this episode is the artist Jacob Nolan, or Jake Nolan. Uh, I think he goes by both. And Jake is a wonderful musician. He sort of has a Ben Gibbard voice of Death Cab for Cutie, if you've heard of that wonderful band. Uh, I You'll hear it later on in the interview I did with him, but he is like really shocked that he thinks he has a Ben Gibbard voice, but I really think that his voice is similar to Ben Gibbard and he's doing some really great, wonderful music. So I really hope that you enjoy his music. You can get connected to both Robin and Jake in the links below, so be sure to give them a look. And as I always suggest, you should totally support me on Patreon. I'm about to start the fall semester and I'll be running around researching and writing papers again so you will soon be seeing papers fly across my patreon account uh, and you will only be able to access the full papers if you are a patron so if you really want to see what i'm writing about and all the work that i'm creating in seminary make sure you become a patron and also be sure to give religionless church a review and a little rating on itunes it always helps a little bit and i would love to see what you have to say about the podcast Enough of me talking. I think you all are ready for another episode of Religionless Church. Robin Henderson Espinoza, who is a queer activist, a Latinx scholar, and a public theologian, and is working on a project uh, that you would call Activist Theology. That's correct? Yeah, active, the Activist Theology Project. That's awesome. So uh, before we get into that, we'll, we'll dive deep uh, head, head first and into a deep dive into Activist Theology. But before we sure. do that, I want to ask you the same question that I ask everybody for the first question is, okay. uh, well, I don't ask them this exact uh, question, but something like it. You'll okay. get the gist of it. But uh, who is Robin Henderson Espinoza to Robin Henderson Espinoza? Oh, that's great. That's a great question. <laughs> um, um, Robin Henderson Espinoza is a wondering mind. 
Ooh. A one a wandering mind, W-A-N-D-E-R, and a wandering mind, W-O-N-D-E-R. I love that. Um and they are recovering their roots in the South. Mm. And they are passionate about seeing change in the world. Mm. And they are um, tenderhearted, but that doesn't get seen a lot because mm. they have to move in the world right. in a way that prevents them to be tenderhearted. Um, and, and they're an intense introvert if they, if they really oh. let you know. Yeah. Wow. I okay. I wouldn't have not expected that from you, but okay. I will. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll take the intense introversion any day. How about that? Yeah. I mean, I just, I just feel like I think Robin would say that you know the reason why they went and did a PhD is because they could just be with their books and their ideas <laughs> all the time. Um, it's safe, oftentimes, right? It's super safe, right? Um, so I think I think Robin would say they feel most at home in a library by themselves. Mm. Uh, and and yet the world continues to call them out of their shell, mm-hmm. out of the library, into the streets. Mm-hmm. But Robin feels really home in the library. I love that. That's great. Yeah. Uh, maybe someday a library could be your home address even. That'd be I know, great. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. So let's dive into activist theology. This is a project that you're working on, and yep. I'm curious, and I think others are curious. What is activist theology? So activist theology is um, something I've really been incubating for the past decade. Okay. And um, I've taken a recent turn to make it a collaborative project. And um, the vision of the activist theology project is this, and I'll share it with you and share it with the world. Um, that with with the growing economic devastation mm-hmm. and the acceleration of capitalism, we live in the toxicity and lack of care for our world that produces an extreme environmental crisis. Mm-hmm. Because of this and so much more, the world palpitates for hope and possibilities. Ooh. In order to, to make a productive intervention in today's world, we must take seriously the role of supremacy culture mm-hmm. that threatens the flourishing of all. The Activist Theology Project exists to shift culture and mindset in such a way that we, ca- we can all hear, feel, and experience the world midwife hope and possibility for a more loving world of radical difference. That's that, that's the, that's the activist theology project. That's a that's a sermon right there. You just yeah. you just did a sermon in in those two minutes. I love that. Yeah. Tell tell me more about that. What what? Yeah. Just tell me more about that. Yeah. So you know, I'm I'm just finishing a book for Fortress Press on on activist theology, and and I I, I didn't go to school to do this. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> um, 
Um, but I, over the past 10 years, as I've been incubating this idea, um, I, I have come to be in the hybrid space of church academy and movements. And what what I realized is that these three social institutions, if you want to call them social institutions, but these three um, areas, if you will, centers, right, mm-hmm. um, are highly disconnected. Um, but over the past 10 years, really over the past 20 years, um, I have moved in all three of these centers in the in in, in this country. And... I, you know, I thought to myself, well, I need to start writing about translating theology to action, translating theory to action, because if we don't figure out how to change culture and mindsets, if we don't shift these things, then we're, I mean, we're just going to like implode, you know? Mm-hmm. And Dr. Sharon Groves, a longtime mentor of mine, said to me, Robin, you're an activist theologian. I'm like, what is that? You know? <laughs> so I just started sort of toying with it in my journal and really started like working out what it is. And and you know, back earlier this year, um I realized that like I do things as a team. Like I have a team that I work with. I always have and so why don't we just, on some level, institutionalize that thing mm. and, and do work in the world as a collaborative project, as a collaborative team? And so that's what we're doing. And we are, we are sort of mobilizing, hopefully, folks in the, the, the three places, church, academy, and movement, mm-hmm. um, to to harness a moral imagination and to midwife hope and possibility and and to create conditions conducive for social healing. So for for the past decade really I've been doing public theology um and I've been called lots of things, a scholar teacher, a scholar activist, a scholar leader, a public theologian, an ethicist, a poet of moral reason, a word <laughs> artist. Um and all of this, all of my work has been done in the public square. Um, and so I'm doing public theology. But if we don't do public theology as harm reduction and as social healing, um, then then we may just be per- per- perpetuating supremacy culture that is bad theology. Right. And, and as we know, bad theology kills. Mm-hmm. And so this turn to do this collaborative project is an attempt to bring together folks um, with whom I've bridged, right? So bridging across lines of radical difference is a thing that I do. Um, and what does it look like for this like motley crew of difference to like do social healing? Right. And that's what we're doing. That's great. We're making it happen. To turn my heart to stone, but it's heavy enough to dredge all the what experiences growing up as a little Robin eventually yeah. influenced activist theology? Mm. Yeah, I write about this in my book. The, the first time I saw a protest was on the television when the Berlin Wall was coming down. Oh, okay. And um, I remember feeling very, very curious about this. And I remember Ronald Reagan being on the national television saying, um, tear down this wall 
and I remember seeing all of the all of the people out and um, protesting, and I thought, "Wow, that that can really make a difference." And then, of course, because I had some level of intelligence, I was in advanced classes and got to think at a different level with mm. people. And then I started to believe in college, ideas can change the world. Um, but it was really uh, in, in, uh, in junior high where I, where I got the fire for activism. But I'm an atypical, atypical activist, right? Like, I, I'm not on the ground all the time. Right. Sometimes I am. Um, I'm called in to protest, to give a talk or whatnot. But, um, you know, I, I'm an atypical activist and I'm much more of a public intellectual, um, hmm. you know, that, that does activism work, really. So you just mentioned a, about experiences growing up that influenced you in activist theology. What recent personal experiences have influenced activist theology? Mm. Well, you know, we're coming up on the year anniversary of Charlottesville, mm -hmm. and, and I was there um, and had a, had a pretty, um, I mean, traumatic experience where um, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, lunged in my direction and Antifa um, absorbed what was intended for me and my security mm. detail picked me up and took me away, you know? So I would certainly look back to Charlottesville, um, and, and, and say that is a moment where everything that we are reading online and everything that was on the news was mobilized into the streets. And, mm. and I think that you know, Charlottesville has had a pretty, a pretty amazing impact on my thinking and, and, and on how we think about both activism and theology and the ways in which religion is often a weapon and, and is weaponized, um, to kill people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other recent thing that has that has really motivated activist theology has been the putting children in cages. Mm. Like I'm just gonna say it like that, you right. know, putting yep. children in cages. Mm -hmm. Like, what are we fucking barbaric, you know? So that's another thing that has just really sort of pulled at me, and um, I don't know what we're gonna do, you know. What theological traditions, maybe liberation theology is one, have influenced activist theology? And what about that tradition or those traditions influenced it? Mm. Wow, those are great questions. And you did not give me give me these questions I know, beforehand. I... So <laughs> so I just want everyone to know that like I'm having to think of this shit on the fly. Um, and you're doing wonderful. Is shit okay to say on your podcast? Absolutely. Okay, okay. Um 
so let's see. I think about, um, I have a dear, dear colleague, comrade, who, who has taught me over the past three years, I don't care what you believe, I care about your politics. And mm-hmm. so um, when I think about what really motivates activist theology into like a disciplinary idea, certainly liberation theology, yes, but also the, um, the anti-assimilation of queer theory mm. that um, when I talk about being an atypical activist, this is about strategy for me. And this is about um, we don't we don't spend all of our money in one place. I mean, I use money. I'm sorry to use a capitalistic frame, but we you know, like we don't throw all of our coins into one thing. Right. This is this is a diversity of strategies. Right. And it's about and at the end of the day, it's about anti-assimilationist politics. Um, so I would say queer theory, I would say liberation theology, um, but though those things can almost feel like talking heads. So I want to actually name real people who, right. who are, have modeled to me activist theology. And I go back to um, my seminary professor, Dr. Nancy Bedford at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, who in the, who in the very beginning had, you know, a sort of spirit of activism in her theology. She's very orthodox. She's um, she's a she's a student of Jürgen Moltmann, um, oh, okay. and so if you know Jürgen Moltmann's story, he was in the military and had a near death experience, mm-hmm. and then you know became a Christian. Um, and so, and of course, Nancy grew up in Argentina and and sort of saw the devastation of Latin America um, at the hands of the U.S. Empire. So I really think Nancy Bedford, Dr. Nancy Bedford, has um, has been someone who has helped me do the theory work of of activist theology um, through her teaching. The other person I would say would be Dr. Ellen Armour, who teaches here at Vanderbilt, and she a decade ago translated intersectionality to a group of us, to a group mm. of budding scholars. And, and I, for the first time, I saw what it meant to translate theory to action. Oh, now, okay. Dr. Nancy Bedford did that years before, but I couldn't recognize it. And so I could, I could see what Ellen did and then sort of go back in my memory and say, oh, Nancy was doing the same thing. So I would say those two, those two women very much. And then I would say my closest comrades, um, people like Jared Vasquez, who grew up Pentecostal and is a as a queer man, um, who is, um, who I like to call my husband of the heart and (laughs) someone who is quick to analyze and quick to act and, and lives a politic that, that doesn't, that gives zero fucks. Mm -hmm. That, that is like the heart of activist theology in so Mm. many ways. And the other person, uh, the other two people who I would name would be uh, Dr. Nikki Young, who teaches at Bucknell um, and is a queer black ethicist, who who is actually, she and I for many years have talked about relationality and how do we actually think about bridging as a relationality that incubates sustainable change, relational mm-hmm. change. So Dr. Nikki Young. And then the last person, save the best for last, of course, right? <laughs> The last person I would name is Reverend Alba Onofrio, 
who is a dear, dear colleague who teaches me every day to live my politics and mm. does it in a way that, um, that doesn't shame me, right? But that says, Robin, I don't care about what you believe. I care about your politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, you living out radical queer politics that for her, for, for Alba, I'm sorry, for Alba would be, are they Christian, right? And so um, for, for me, I would say, do they follow in the ways of Jesus? Because right. I'm, I'm much more liberationist in, in that sense. Um, and so I think I would, I would name those five people who, who for me are icons for activist theology. Um, I mean, I could name a whole bunch of books that have informed me. But, but really, the heart of activist theology is a return to story and mobilizing people through story to, to create sustainable change. Much of your work with activist theology is to move theory into practice. What are some of the ways the academy attempts to suppress the movement of theory into practices? I mean, all sorts of ways, right? You have to choose a major in college. You have to <laughs> you have to choose a discipline, right? You study in a discipline. So the academy is always suppressing and narrowizing. Mm. You know, you're, you know, of course, you, when you go to the PhD, you're, you're an expert in like one thing, so supposedly. Um, and, and I would say that the, that in many senses, the, the academy is not concerned, um, with practice necessarily. I think, I think you have to, you have to, um, you have to go to the right institution. You have to, you have to be asking the right questions if you're concerned with practice. Uh, practical theology. I, I tell people, I'm learning how to be a practical theologian right now. I was not trained as a practical theologian. Mm. The academy. I don't think the academy teaches people how to how to do practical theology. In fact, people with a PhD in practical theology, I would say you're not practical theologians unless you're hanging out at the Walmart or the Seven right. Eleven or the or the whatever, um, getting your hands dirty with people, right? Because because the academy is not, and, and, and the movement in many ways is not going to teach you to, to be uh, practical. And, you know, the church sure as hell is not going to teach you to be practical. It's a mm-hmm. passive environment where you go and you sit in a pew and you get preached at. And that there's nothing practical about that. Mm. Sorry, I got, I got on a soapbox. I'm sorry. So today we have Jake, who has been the artist that you've been hearing throughout this episode. And Jake and his wonderful voice are about to talk to us about your music. So, Jake, I saw on your Twitter, or maybe it was your Instagram, one of those social media platforms, that you have a new album on the horizon. Uh, tell us about that. What's going on with that? What's, what's this new album thing in your Twitter bio for? Thank you, Mason. Um, yes. So, um, people that know me, uh, on social media know that I can be a little sporadic. Um, people (laughs) that know me in person know that I'm very eccentric, but I have a, I have a great local community and a great internet community. So first off, 
I'll say that. But um, yes, I have been um, I have been really busy with um, the duo that I'm a part of, the Gnarly Pints. We've been really busy, and then <laughs> um, and then I've started. I kind of shifted gears because for the last ten years or so, I've I've been kind of peeling myself off of my front my rock frontman days. Um, you know, in high school and college and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And, and kind of kind of finding myself as a solo artist has been like a 10-year journey for me. Okay. Um, and so I've kind of shifted gears and I'm doing something that's a little more stripped down. I don't want to call it folk because that's what everybody calls it. <laughs> um, but picture like, you know, Beck's um, Morning Phase album meets yeah. Zero Seven. You know, something like that. So, mm-hmm. so, so that's kind of what I'm working on. Um, you know, something also that, that is, you know, makes a little more sense. Something the wife thinks will be a little bit more worth my time too, so <laughs> that I'm not, I'm not always doing abstract releases. So yeah, to, I hope that answers your question. I a rabbit trail really, really bad, but I hope that was your, no, that's great. Yeah, uh, that's kind of what I'm doing here. So what, uh, what are some influences maybe musically, maybe, maybe just experiences in your life that yeah. have influence and and shaped this new album oh man where do i even begin um well musically there's there's far too many to name um i think first and foremost i'm influenced by um by god almighty and the incredible things that he's done in my life and the incredible things that even even in times of of doubt and darkness. Um, I've, I've only just recently kind of opened up about, um, my struggle with severe depression and things like that. And, okay. and it's, it's amazing to me how even, even in the wake of all of that, when I'm all, when I'm focused on myself, how, um, it always comes back to him. And, and I, and that's one thing that I'm very, um, I'm very thankful for. So first and foremost, musically, even, uh, I would have to say God. And then, Oh gosh, um, there's so many uh, there's so many artists to name. Uh, my wife is one of them. My wife's a very talented musician. Okay. Um, I, I when I was younger, I was really into rock bands like Deftones and Chevelle. Yeah. Uh, and nowadays, you'll find me listening to. Um, I, I mean, I've always listened to Royksop. There's never been a time where I didn't like Royksop. Okay. Um, Beck. Um, I really like. What else have I been listening to? Man, yeah, that's kind of what I've been listening to these days. Um, mm-hmm. A little Ryan, little Ryan Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, and then just um, I love I love Coen Brothers movies. Um, man, mm. yeah, I've never I've heard ne- of a Coen Brother movie as an influence on one's artistic uh, expression in oh, music. Oh, buddy, oh, buddy, those guys, those guys literally carve a new genre with every movie they release um i yeah so especially with with movies like oh brother where art thou and no country for old men mm-hmm. uh so and good. then intolerable cruelty which is one that not a lot of people like but i i literally like i gag laughing at that movie every time i watch it so gag laugh that's a thing to gag laugh yeah so. what are uh what are some themes on this new album themes that may maybe theme of love loss what what's what's going on with the themes all of the above um so um i've my wife and i have recently relocated um back to um our it's not our hometown but it's home to us uh over here in 
in California, Northern California, in a town okay. called Chico. A lot of people have heard of Chico State, but okay, we're not we're not here for the Chico State. Have, have you so, ever heard of a band called Number One Gun? Of course, I have. I know they're they're a Chico band. Yes, and and I've I've never officially met Jeff Schneeweiss, though I have uh, I have Facebook messaged him and I have sat next to him eating a burrito, unbeknownst to both of us, until the end of the meal. No so, way. <laughs> yeah, way. Uh, yeah, he, he's a very accomplished dude, and um, you know, and yeah, I, I, the um, I'm trying to remember that album of theirs. Was it called "To the Secrets and Knowledge"? Was that what that one was? Uh, Anyways, that that one, maybe. that one, that was a big influence of mine, especially back in the day. Definitely. Um, but but yeah, to answer your question, so this album has themes of love. It has themes of realness. It has themes of um, the second track is um, it has. A working title there's no official name for it but it will basically be my like song about like summarizing my depression and and then uh, a couple other songs just kind of dealing with uh you know being a musician and a parent and a husband mm-hmm. um and uh you know and a friend and kind of kind of breaking the mold of being this you know this mysterious uh person and being more real with people and being more open and um yeah just kind of laying myself more bare than I ever have. I've always centered around abstract lyricism and I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring it a little bit more to the more forward. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's great. So I do have to ask, Mm -hmm. maybe you've gotten this before, maybe you haven't, but how do you make your voice sound like Ben Gibbard? Uh, Is that the guy from, uh, from uh, uh, death cab for cutie? Yes. Have you gotten that before? (laughs) No, I haven't, but I will It's pretty similar. I will take that. Uh, he has he has the voice of, like, just really aged wine. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, his, his voice is, like, has matured well. We'll put it that way. Oh, so, well, that, listen, I listen to a little bit more Death Cab. I think I hear it. I don't know if, I don't know if you hear it, but I definitely do. I have kind of discovered that I like Death Cab for Cutie at the more as I get older. When when they were first really huge, well not first really huge, but back, you know, early two thousands era when all of my all my hipster friends were listening to Death Cab for Cutie, it was too mellow for me. I was really into just metal and Well right, you were listening to Chevelle. Yeah, I was banging my head and 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 had a little, you know, uh, had some, you know, Maybe it was a little bit of a brain injury thing. I'm kidding. But uh, no, I love Death Cab for Cutie. Um, and um, I actually got into a Twitter argument with Dave Depper, his guitarist. But that's that's another conversation for another time. Oh. <laughs> it was so stupid. But um, but no, I love I love Death Cab for Cutie. And I will I will definitely take that compliment. That is the first time I've ever been compared to him, though. And I'm I'm going to quote you on that. Maybe. Well, I so I listened to your cover. Um, that Beatles cover that you have on YouTube, and oh, that was the first thing. The yeah, that was the first thing that popped into my mind. I'm like, where have I heard this voice before? And then I was like, oh, that's Ben Gibbard. That's that's pretty good. That's pretty dope. I'll. That's a that's a voice that is worth uh being compared to. I'll take it. I'll take it, man. Thank you. That's that's very kind. So besides new projects, what yeah. or besides a new album, what are some new projects maybe on the horizon got any tours or uh, anything else on the horizon in terms of your music well so my uh my wife and i just returned from uh, a week-long tour in washington state with uh kevin max from dc talk that no way 
Yeah, that was awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy. He's hilarious. Um, I had sushi with him and his band. Uh, his drummer <laughs> drummed for the Temptations. Uh, okay. Aaron Aaron Smith. So yeah, there was it was it was surreal and it was awesome. Um, but uh, I'm I'm actually in the throes of um, just trying to finish this album and then I will hit the road with it this winter probably and um, and just try to do as much west of the Rockies as I can. Um, my, my wife, Emily, and I, the Gnarly Pints, we are, um, we are trying to make it out to the East Coast, um, mm -hmm. hopefully next year, hopefully early next year. It's just a matter of road nannies and babysitters and that sort of thing. So, Well, if you ever get out to Minneapolis, definitely hit me up because I, 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 know, I know places you can play. I will surely do that. I will surely do that. I know some great places. All right, so last question. Where can people mm -hmm. get in contact with you and your music? So um, my latest project, um, I, I, <laughs> I've always gone as Jake Nolan, and this latest project I'm going as Jacob Nolan or just Jacob. So Ooh, I know. You're really throwing from loop right there. Yeah, very, uh, very abstract. I know, um, really specific. So my my Twitter handle is uh, at Jacob Nolan Music. My Instagram handle is at uh, Jacob Nolan Official. Um, those are the main two ones that I use. I am on Facebook. Um, I don't like that I'm on Facebook, but I'm on Facebook. <laughs> we all, yeah, we're all in that boat. Yeah, we're all regrettably, begrudgingly on Facebook, yep. and uh, so yeah. But that's yeah. If you you want to connect. You're not going to hear any anything yet other than that while my guitar gently weaves cover um, just because I'm, I'm piecing together my debut, as it were, for that. Mm -hmm. Even though I've I've done tons of albums and singles over the last 10 years or so, this is like a it's a fresh start for me that I'm, I'm really excited about. Cool. Well, thank you again for chatting about your music. And I hope Let's the do. best for the new album and uh, for the upcoming tour. Ah, Mason. Thank you, and, and thank you for having me on, and it's been a real pleasure, man. What religious liturgical practices do you envision in, that do inspire its participants to, uh, to eventually participate in public liturgical practices? Does that yeah, make sense? So, yeah. So I, I want I just want to highlight the work of I think it's Open Table Nashville. Okay. That does um and I would have to look it up to make sure, but I think it's Open Table Na Open Table Nashville, which is a ministry that focuses on the under homes here in Nashville. Mm. And they every Easter, right, because high holidays still mean something in this country, but in Easter during Easter um, they do stations of the cross in public and mm. their stations of the cross are, are activist oriented. And so I would say that is the work that we really should be doing. Right. Um, should be fucking having this shit in, in cathedrals that is, that is preserving a type of, um, ideology and imagination that is less porous than being on the streets. If we can be in the streets and actually enact this sort of radical liturgical orientation, it not only produces a new imagination for theology, and we have to remember that all theology is ethics, mm -hmm. so it not only produces a new imagination for, for theology, which produces new social practices, 
but it actually um we get the new sort of poetic resistance in the world when we start doing these things in public. I love that. Do you know of any other practices that this community does that um, sort of gets at the heart of what you were just talking about? So, I, I mean, they, I don't know if they would call it liturgy, but th- th- their ministry is to be in the streets and being street chaplains and whatnot. Mm-hmm. The, um, Nicola Torbett is another person who does um, this, I think, the Stations of the Cross and activism, and they're in the Bay Area. Um, And I'm trying to think of other people that I know of. But that's like, you know, that that very much is the heart of activist theology in many respects, right? Like Mm -hmm. radicalizing liturgy in the streets. Um, But, you know, I have a deep, I have a deep, deep commitment to religious difference. And so mm. we don't need to only be talking about Christianity here. We need to talk about how does Judaism, right? How, how is Judaism um, advancing a sort of radical liturgical orientation in activism? Um, and I, and I would say beloved in Brooklyn, uh, Rabbi Sarah Loria, who is, doing the deep work of connection and tradition and relationality that is transforming um, Judaism in New York. So you mentioned that the streets are a place where theology is being birthed right now. What are new theologies that you see being birthed in the streets right now? Well, I mean, I think we have to talk about um, Black Lives Matter, mm. and we have to talk about how Black Lives Matter as a leaderful movement um, that was birthed in the streets um, because of the execution of a black man, um, mm-hmm. state-sponsored execution. Mm-hmm. I think we have to talk about that. I think we also have to talk about, um, and this dates back to the farm workers movement how um, Latinx people are, um, you know, they're trying to survive in a world that has been polarized by the black-white racial binary. And so Mm -hmm. this question of immigration and what does it mean to fully count in the United States, I think is, is a place where where theology, activist theology is being birthed in the streets. Um, and then I I would also say, you know, because as a non-binary transgender person, I, I, I want to raise up the ways in which toxic masculinity is, mm-hmm. white toxic masculinity mm-hmm. is killing black trans women in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and the theology that is being birthed um, in response to the, um, to, to the ways in which black trans women are being murdered, um, I would say is another fold of activist theology. And, you know, we all need to get real clear on, on, um, on how we are going to participate or whether we're going to continue to capitulate to the logic of mm-hmm. dominance. Um, and, and I think a lot of us are not clear on where we stand when it, when it comes to, to these things. Uh, and these are matters of the heart, you know.
also alluded to this very briefly earlier, where you mention the importance of storytelling to activist theology. How is the act, the very act of storytelling, a subversive one to the powers that be? Yeah, I mean, it's subversive in the sense that you're, you know, the, the, the notion of a text, we, um, we, we have built ideas on a notion of text and narrative, but we often don't put the I or the self into the text or the narrative. Mm-hmm. And when we begin to put the I, when we put the self into the narrative, into the very text that is to be activated as a theological thing, which is always ethical, mm-hmm. um, that completely s- subverts. It, 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 it dismantles, it destabilizes um, ideology. Mm-hmm. And and we're able to it puts a crack, shall we say, <laughs> it creates porosity. Um, we're able to make an intervention into um, into the world, I think, into into theology and ethics. Um, so story is super subversive, and also let's remember that only a few people throughout history have been able to have a voice. Right. Um, the fact that I have a public platform and and can write and can speak um is is new right we i mean mm-hmm. most people who occupy the public platform and public space are cis white straight men mm-hmm. and so that you have a non-binary trans square latinx who is who is super transgressive and and is committed to story um Somebody, you know, there were conditions that made that possible. And I would say it has been some of the white lesbians who have created, created a way for me to have Mm. a platform, Mm -hmm. which is, which is, which is interesting, right? Because we don't think about, we don't think about white lesbians necessarily having a platform. Why? Because it's dominated by cis white straight men, Right. right? So, so the people who have the platform, are those with the greatest social capital and and the folks with with the less the lesser part of social capital have created conditions a possibility for me with even with even lesser social mm. capital to take place in in a world in a sort of ecosystem that that is not made for me right mm. and and I would say the two people who have done that for me um, have been Dr. Sharon Groves and Reverend Deborah Peavy, and I and I and I and I highlight that because if we don't know who our people are and we don't know who is making the interventions on our behalf, mm-hmm. um, then then we don't participate well in the in this entanglement that we're all in, um, and and we don't remove the boot that is on both of our necks, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier about how, at some points, you have been labeled as a public theologian and are part of doing public theology. What are the ways that you differentiate public theology with activist theology? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think activist theology is public theology. Mm. Um, we, 
and, and when I talk about public theology, I talk about public theology as social healing um, and that public theology, I do theology um, for harm reduction purposes. Um, but the historically public theology has been um, a recognizable leader of a denomination of the Christian faith making statements right, right. in the public square. So think of Reinhold Niebuhr, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King, um, et cetera. And, and I, and I want to say yes. And yes, mm. that is a thing. And there's this other thing that's happening that we need to pay attention to that such rich theology, which is activism is being birthed in the prophetic place of the streets. Right. And so I want to say, yes, I do public theology, but I do it in this activist theology way, which is about resurrecting the prophetic norm of the streets. Mm-hmm. So that's how I would distinguish that. I will save your world this time, this time. I will break your heart this time. As a scholar, I'm sure you're very well familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, as you know, my podcast is called Religionless Church, which is sort of play on words of religionless Christianity. So I'm sure that you're very familiar with religionless Christianity and, and what Bonhoeffer may have meant by that. So what are the ways that you find your work sort of speaking to or relating to religionless Christianity? Yeah, I mean, I'm not invested in empire religion. Um, yeah. and Clearly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think if we get down to it, um, I, I think that was one of the things that Bonhoeffer was after, resisting nationalism and 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 the ways in which nationalism becomes the religion uh, of the time. <clears throat> um, so I would say I, I'm not invested in empire religion or empire theology, and I'm also not interested in... I'm not interested in being the only voice. Like, one of the things that I'm trying to do is is create um create enough of space so that we can have a multiplicity of voices happening so that mm-hmm. it's not it's not a it's not a singular narrative right mm-hmm. so so one of the things about public theology historically has been it's a singular narrative but right. what happens what happens when we have a multiplicity of voices with with it with with a multiplicity of narratives how does that actually contribute to religionless church and actually create streams, right? Streams of thinking, streams of ideas. Um, I mean, I, I just think my my commitment to multiplicity, my divestment from empire, um, my my commitment to bridging across lines of radical difference, I think those three things are like pivotal, pivotal to religionless church. Last question. How can listeners get connected to your work and um, in contact with you? Sure. So I am on Facebook and um, my full name, Robin Henderson Espinosa. 
Um, the collaborative project, the Activist Theology Project, is on Facebook as well. And um, we are on Twitter as Activist Theology 1T. So it's like one word that bleeds mm-hmm. together, Activist Theology. <laughs> and then um, I'm on Twitter at irobin, that's R-O-B-Y-N, the letter I, R-O-B-Y-N. Um, and then my website is irobin.com. You can um, like watch videos of me and whatnot. And, and we just had a podcast that dropped, The Sacred and Profane, mm-hmm. with Cam Rocker from Canada. Uh, which is all about storytelling. Uh, we're getting ready to to figure out what our second season is. But yeah, I'm on the Instagrams at iRobin, Facebook, Twitter, and then my website. Yep. Is the iRobin kind of like a little play on what Apple does with all their products? Yeah. So this was years ago when I was living in Chicago and just getting into to Apple. Okay. I, I texted a, a friend of mine who worked at Apple. I'm like, I'm thinking about buying this domain name, iRobin. What do you think about that? He was like, it's clever. So yeah, it's a play, <laughs> it's a play on apples. That's so great. How about yeah. that? Um, I know that you're doing some work with Trip Fuller right now. Um, yeah. Or maybe, I, I don't know if you all have finished up, but um, yeah, what are upcoming projects? You mentioned a book is coming out soon with Fortress Press. Any other upcoming projects or gigs that you're uh, in the works on? Yeah, so the book is is hopefully going into production soon with Fortress. Um, the Theology Beer Camp, which is next week for me, um, starting on August 15th, I think. Um, uh, I'm hanging out with Trip Fuller for several days at Habitat Brewing Company in Asheville. Okay. And um, tickets, of course, are on sale for that. Um and I'm really excited to be doing the opening keynote on resurrecting a prophetic Christianity. Mm. Um, and then I'm going to do some LGBT rights work in Cuba. And okay. I'm looking forward to, to being um, down in Latin America and in the Caribbean to learn more about what, what, can, what can we be doing here to, to help folks there. And I'll be connecting with the seminary down there and, um, you know, just learning more, uh, you know, more just keep learning, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, and you know, I've got a busy fall season. All my events are listed on my website, but yeah, I'll be speaking in Virginia and in Indiana and in Denver this fall. So I'm really excited for the fall. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being a part of this and, um, just letting us know what it is that you're doing in the world. And, um, and you're doing wonderful work. So thank, thank you so you much so for much. sharing. Thanks so much, Mason. I appreciate it. Just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Is a cliche that remains so misunderstood. I hope you all are creating your protest signs as we speak. I mean, if you were not inspired to go out and support those who are marginalized in your communities and neighborhoods, I don't know what else will. I think Robin is an unbelievable scholar and has absolutely intersected the scholarship of theological inquiry with the active and and important response to the work that needs to be done out in the public and in the streets. So I really hope that you engage with Robin's work and um, I'm not sure exactly when that book is going to be coming out but definitely be on the lookout for Robin's book that's coming out with Fortress Press. And how about Jake's music? So really just 
good. I know he's been interacting with me lately on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, for those that follow me on there know that I post about music all the time, and all the bands and artists that I post about, he like responds back and clearly likes them too. So um, anybody that has a similar taste in music as me, I mean, they're automatically really good musicians, I think. So uh, I think Jake's in that, in that same uh, branch as well. I know both Robin and Jacob would really appreciate your support. So be sure to check out the links in the description below. And as I alluded to earlier in the episode, be sure to check out my Patreon page, see what I'm up to, and I would really also appreciate your work. And that link is also in the description below. Also, be sure to drink your Ovaltine and, and give Religionless Church a rating and a review on iTunes if you're one of those iTunes snobs, which you all should be because you all should be Apple snobs. But if you're not, uh, no judgment. Clearly, there's no judgment here. All right, before I get off on a huge tangent about the superiorness of Apple, I think it's time to say goodbye. So, peace out, y'all.